Daily Drive is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Find out what Reynolds is up to in the digital retailing space by visiting reyrey.com slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash retail anywhere. I'm Jason Stein, publisher of Automotive News, and this is Daily Drive for Monday, June 7th. The saga that is the Carlos Ghosn story is the stuff of a good novel. Money, power, success, a high-stakes arrest, a prison sentence, and an escape in a box used for musical instruments. There is the talk of a movie chronicling the rise and fall of one of the auto industry's truly unique executives. But now, first, a book co-authored by Automotive News Asia Editor and Tokyo Bureau Chief Hans Grimel. There couldn't be a better reporter to write the book on Gone. Hans has been chronicling Gone for more than a decade and has had many experiences, up close and personal, to tell the story. Now, in Collision Course, Carlos Gone and the Culture Wars that Upended an Auto Empire, Hans and his co-author, William Sposato, explore all dimensions of the Gone affair. The personalities, the dynamics surrounding the arrest, and the current state of the situation that has made global headlines and upended three companies that Gone once controlled, Renault, Nissan, and Mitsubishi. The book will be published later this month, but today, in the first part of a two-part Daily Drive episode, we talk about the details around Carlos Ghosn and his path forward. We've reached Hans Grimel in Tokyo. It's always good to catch up with our Tokyo Bureau Chief. Hans Grimel, how are you today? Very good, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show, Hans. So we've we've had you multiple times. We've never had you as an author. And uh, the release of your forthcoming book, Collision Course, all about Mr. Gone and co-authored with William Esposado, uh, is an exciting moment for us at Automotive News. I'm sure it has to be exciting for you. Let's start off with the, just the basics. Uh, how long did you take to write the book? Well, that's a good uh, question. We were approached in early 2020, right after Gone escaped Japan, and it was you know it was bombastic news at the time, uh, capturing world headlines, and it was really the world was abuzz with uh, the the, uh, the story. Agents approached us in early 2020, and um, well, we've been working on it uh, ever since, in one form or the other, and. Um, well, it's finally coming out for sale um, June 22nd. It's fabulous news. No one has been closer to the action than you throughout the years, and I want to get into that in a minute. But let's start off with Collision Course, the name itself. It is a theme that runs through the book. The subtitle is Carlos Ghosn and the Culture Wars that Upended an Auto Empire. What were some of those culture wars, and are they still going on today? Well, the short answer is yes, the, the culture wars or these collisions are still going on today. Um, and we track some of them that go back really to the foundations of the, um, of the alliance. We're talking about collisions of, on, on the wider industry, like forces that are driving the industry, the collisions between the old guard, uh, internal combustion and the new technologies that are coming in such as um, electrification and autonomous driving, uh, connectivity, the collision of these these technologies and the pressures that it's putting on automakers to combine. And this, this other collision this, uh, between 
scale and profitability, trying to uh, increase scale as a way to maximize profitability uh, in a new era of the industry, and the pressures that puts on companies to uh, form these kind of alliances and the difficulties that alliances face. On a, wide, a different scale, you see the collision between like the French side and the Japanese side, the governments behind their their companies, the, trying to back their companies and protect their companies. You see collisions between the Nissan side and the Renault side, just in terms of corporate culture, or the needs of their own companies and their own customers, and how they don't always match the needs of the other companies, their partner companies, customers, and um, engineers. Uh, zoom out, you see even collisions between the ideas of justice or or um, when Western justice versus Japanese justice, and those become clear when we, we follow Gon through the Japanese justice system. Um, there's all these collisions that kind of... Um, they combined together to form the chain reaction that led to uh, Gon's uh, arrest and the aftermath that the alliance is still struggling with. The essence of the book is that you've been able to capture so much rich detail, not only from your reporting through the years and chronicling the, the, the rise, the fall of Carlos Gon, but also just the the fact that you had the 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 access to him that that most people didn't can you tell me a little bit about that how how well you got to know him through the years <laughs> i'm not sure anybody really gets to know uh carlos gone i i wasn't you know i don't consider myself uh you know a friend of his or a, a personable with him whenever you interview him i've interviewed him numerous times over over the my more than a decade of working at Automotive News, but uh, he always remains an enigma. There's always a, a kind of a wall of very uh, of professionalism that that comes down. There's no, no such thing as chit chat. You come in with with uh, with Gone and you sit down, and it's he's there's nothing like how was your weekend, uh, how how's the family, or uh, how are you? It's simply okay. Let's get started. What uh, what would you like to ask me? And it's very um, almost mechanical and hyper efficient and uh, focused on the task at hand. So it's hard to get a a clear picture of him as a person beyond him as a as an executive. Relationships were. Uh, indeed complicated with Carlos Ghosn. And uh, you put a big focus in the book on what you call the fraught relationship between Ghosn and French President Emmanuel Macron, which was tense well before he became president. Can you explain that? Right. Well, I mean, it goes back to the time when uh, when he was a finance minister, or Macron was a finance minister, and uh, had essentially an oversight of um, – the French government's holding in Renault. And that was always kind of a thorn in Renault's side and, and especially in Gon's side. Gon in particular takes a kind of a dim view about government meddling in, uh, in, in industry and in the economy and business. So right away he thinks that, um, you know, the French holding in in Renault is uh, more, you know, causes often causes more problems than it's worth. Um, and so you have that 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 um, that tension right there 
going going all the way back, but especially with Macron because he uh, was kind of the instigator of this um, uh, crisis within the the um, alliance called the Florange Crisis, where the French government took took its shares and doubled the voting rights of uh, the French government's shares in Renault in a kind of runaround of Gaon that um, that could have um, and did at the time uh, trigger a crisis with its partner Nissan, strictly because Nissan was wary of French involvement, the French government's involvement in Renault and by extension in Nissan. We have an excerpt in automotive news running today in paper form as well as online. And your book really puts a spotlight on a number of characters who have not been the focus of many headlines. I want to ask you about one of them. Philippe Klein. He was tasked with explaining Gohn's arrest to executives at Renault. Tell us more. Well, Philippe Klein is an interesting character. He, uh, during his, his, uh, time, he's retired now, but during his time at, uh, the Alliance, uh, he wasn't a, a upfront and media facing kind of executive, although he was very, um, influential at both companies. He came from the, uh, French side. He was one of Gohn's confidants from the early days. He ran the CEO office for Gohn at, I believe, both companies, actually, uh, Nissan and at Renault. And later on, he was essentially the senior uh, French executive at at uh, Nissan, running product planning for the, the whole company uh, at the time of Gohn's arrest. And he was seen as kind of a a bridge, a, a trustworthy bridge between the two companies. And uh, he was tasked that night of Gohn's arrest by then-CEO uh, Hiroto Saikawa to essentially go to France and try to explain what the heck just happened to uh, the colleagues um, at, on the Renault side who were completely broadsided. We'll hear more from Automotive News Asia editor Hans Grimel after this. As online experiences exploded this past year, it was clear dealers needed an approach that kept them in business for the long term. Chris Walsh, Casey Edwards, and Dave Bates, Top Reynolds executives, sat down to discuss today's digital retailing landscape. Here's an excerpt from that roundtable discussion. So what are dealers trying to do to get this fully online and online to in-store experience? I mean, that's a great question, and honestly, it's, a, it's kind of a hard one to answer because retailers are kind of defining and using digital retailing differently. You know, to some dealers, it's selling a car. To other, it's sales and F&I, and they, they tend to be approaching it in chunks versus, you know, kind of a holistic, holistic approach, and then you end up just focusing on one or two things when you need to focus on, you know, more of a big picture. Digital retailing is dealership operations, period. Reynolds' Retail Anywhere approach focuses on streamlining dealership operations and improving profitability. For more information about this big-picture, holistic approach, visit reyrey.com slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash retail anywhere. What did you learn in, I guess, researching part of that reaction involving Renault? What, what, what part of that surprised you? Well, when he was uh, arrived there, he was met with 
just raw shock and disbelief and uh, air of suspicion. I mean, he had been at Nissan for a number of years at that point. He Technically, he saw himself at that point like a Nissan employee, yet he was French. And in some ways, they, they kind of questioned him, like, what? How, how could he have been um, arrested? This doesn't make sense. There must be some kind of conspiracy here. Yet, uh, Philippe Klein is, was sent there to relay uh, Nissan's message, which was that uh, Gong had been caught up in uh, this kind of uh, misconduct and tried to, to relay their, their facts, the Nissan's argument, to the French side. So he was basically caught between two worlds as a, as a, as a, as a messenger here, trying to fulfill to, you know, Nissan, his role at Nissan. Um, and at the same time, he, he was also, um, not playing with a full deck of, of facts or a full deck of cards. There was only so much that he knew at that point and only so much that Nissan was willing to, uh, divulge at that point. So he was really, uh, caught in an awkward situation. The whole saga is very much about Gones pay. In fact, highlighted in one of the excerpts. Uh, that starts off, uh, how much was Carlos Ghosn worth to Nissan? Was it 80 million, 90 million, possibly more than 100 million? The, these amounts of money are staggering, uh, especially when you consider um, a lot of the other, uh, I would say, uh, restrictions that were trying to be put in place within France. Did it all just come down to pay? Was that all it was, or was there more here than 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 we were aware of that maybe you've learned in the researching of this book? Well, pay seems to be the the uh, one of the trigger points here. And whether or not there was a crime committed is, um, you know, that's up for the, the, the judges to decide if, if indeed uh, going ever goes to court. But the crucial element here was a change in the Japanese reporting rules or the disclosure rules for, for corporations in 2010, which required that individual CEOs who make above a certain amount of money and that level was about $1 million a year, they have to disclose their, their pay on an individual basis. And what's becoming clear now in the trial of Greg Kelly, that's the Nissan director who was arrested alongside going at the same time and charged as his kind of accomplice or uh, helper in this, in this, um, these alleged, uh, mis- this alleged misconduct. Well, what's becoming clear in that, that scheme is that, or in that trial, in the testimony of that trial, is that Gong was very concerned about having his huge Nissan salary, um, be made public. One, because it would be embarrassing in Japan, but two, especially, it would be even more embarrassing in France, where uh, both countries, of course, have this kind of norm that, you know, CEOs aren't supposed to be paid as high as they are in the United States, where, you know, a CEO of an executive, an executive uh, CEO at General Motors or Ford might make over, easily over $20,000 dollars or sorry 22 <laughs> that shows you where my mind is as a, as a, as a journalist mm-hmm. so let me read that not 20,000 but 20 million dollars a year and um 
Um, instead, uh, you know, he was making uh, he was making less than that, but still in that in that ballpark before the disclosure rules. After the disclosure rules, he decided to essentially cut his pay in half, and um, so that it would look more um, acceptable to people in France and in Japan. And um, that's what triggered it. He was never satisfied with the fact that he had had to take that pay cut. And the allegations by the prosecutors were that, hey, you know what? He wasn't planning to take that pay cut. He was secretly uh, stashing away money to be that that balance, that that pay cut amount to be paid back later. Yeah, just deferred. Sure. Mm -hmm. Six years ago, you covered the story about Julie Hamp, the U.S. Toyota executive arrested in Japan after essentially shipping pain medication to herself. And now the whole gone arrest drama. What lessons do they hold for overseas executives working in Japan? Well, it's hard to compare the two um, the two cases. In, in uh, Julia Hemp's case, she was never officially charged or indicted, and she was let go. And of course, in Gone's case, uh, he was indicted four times and and kept in jail for 130 days over two stints. Uh, in jail after being released once. So it's a little bit different, difficult to compare the cases, but I think a general, um, lesson that might be drawn from here is that the, it's difficult to do business or to navigate, um, society here where you don't necessarily know the rules and you don't have easy access to the rules because you don't speak the language and you can't read the legal texts and things like that. It's, uh, you're kind of operating out of your, like a fish out of water essentially. And, uh, it's, you might get caught up in some issues that you might not otherwise, you might be normal issues in your, your home country. It might be done one way in your home country, but done differently in Japan. And you might not be aware of it here. So that's one, one rule. Or one um, thing takeaway that might come from this lesson. Another might be, for example, just the uh, insights into how Japanese justice is different and from the American system. Whereas in Japan, you are uh, once if you're arrested, you're you are put into jail, and the questioning is is uh, a little bit different than you would expect in the U.S. Here in Japan. You are at the mercy of the prosecutors who can uh, interrogate you countless hours a day, essentially unlimited hours a day, um, at their um, at their request, without your lawyer present. So it's kind. It's almost like a, a forced interrogation. Very difficult to uh, deal with that. The emphasis on the justice system here is on a quick confession by the uh, the accused. And that comes largely, and in most cases they expect that because the Japanese defendant usually does that, simply because of the withering interrogation that they face. Now, in both Camp's case and in Gone's case, neither of them uh, confessed. And um, well, in Hamp's case, she she held out long enough to be released, and in Gone's case, uh, he held out long enough to escape by his own means. We reached Automotive News Asia editor Hans Grimel in Tokyo. And that's Daily Drive for Monday, June 7th. For breaking news, go to autonews.com. And for a library of more than 350 interviews, go to autonews.com slash daily drive. We'll be back with part two of this series 
Tuesday.